0: The uh, Romans had a practice of crucifixion um, that had as much to do with torture and public humiliation and sending a sign to the enemies of Rome as it did with actually putting people to death. Uh, The Romans didn't invent it. It was invented uh, many years before Rome but the Romans historians would say somehow perfected this this barbaric form of, of Culture and this barbaric form of, of execution. And by the time of Jesus, they'd added to crucifixion scourging, which was whipping the condemned man with a, a whip that had metal tips on it. They would beat and humiliate the condemned man. They would spit on him. They would parade him through the streets, making him carry his own cross. And eventually, when the criminal got to the place where that criminal was to be executed, they will nail that criminal to the cross through their hands and through their feet. And and that was not as elegant as the pictures show it. And the pictures never do it justice. They they unearthed some archaeological um, finds that showed that one man had actually been nailed with his feet round to the sides of the cross. And so somehow they bent the knees around to the side and so they were doing things to make it as painful and as horrible and as visibly repulsive as, as they could so that, so that if you saw this and you were thinking of insurrection, you were thinking of trying to stand up against Rome, it was doing its, its utmost to deter you from that. And of course, the pr- actual process of crucifixion was one to cause death, not quickly, but over time. Over a long time, over hours, over days, it would seem. And the process, if you ever read accounts of how people understand that this might have actually happened, it involves cramps setting in and cramp becoming paralysis and paralysis eventually overtaking even, even your lungs. And so your attempts to breathe fall short. And somehow in that attempting to breathe, eventually, as I said, over hours and sometimes over days, you would die. And the interesting thing is that from the midst of his own experience of crucifixion, Jesus uttered some words, and the writers of the gospel wrote these words down, and those words were often described and have often been described as Jesus's last words. And so we're beginning a new series this morning where we're going to be looking at some of the words Jesus spoke from the midst of the time of crucifixion, and also some words he spoke just after the crucifixion. So the title of this series is is Last Words. And we begin this morning um, with a text taken from Luke 23, verses 33 to 34. It says there, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And that word of forgiveness is the word that we're going to spend some time thinking about this morning. I wonder what you think Jesus meant when he said, Father, Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Whether you thought that Jesus is speaking perhaps to the people who are directly in front of him, the Romans and Jurens who've just nailed him to the cross. Have You ever thought that? Maybe Jesus is speaking to the Jewish authorities who might be standing a little further away. The Jewish authorities and rulers who listened to the people when they said crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, who had hated Jesus for years and years because he'd been the one that had once upon a time told them that they were were, uh, uh, wicked people and terrible people. And he said, woe to you to many of them, because of the horrible things that they'd said about him, because he was challenging their right to rule. And he said that ruling and leading was not the way they ruled and led, but it was about service. It wasn't about lording over. It was about something more humble and something more loving than what they were doing. So the whole of Jesus's life, he was confronting these people. Do you think he was speaking maybe to them or to the crowds that themselves had been the ones crying, crucify him, crucify him. Or maybe he was speaking to the man on his left and his right. There's a scripture said there was a criminal on one side and a criminal on another side. And you might recall that the scripture says that one criminal was mocking Jesus and saying, if you're the son of God, take yourself off and and while you're doing it, take us down too. Maybe Jesus was speaking to them when he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they were doing. And it's interesting because that's the exact placement of, of this text in the gospel. But I wonder whether it was something else. Maybe it was those things and something else also. Because there's a passage in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 5.25, where the scripture says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And so all the husbands, when you read that, you realize that we are called to love our wives in the same way as Christ loved the church and gave himself for his bride, the church. And the interesting thing is that Jesus gives himself for the church, do you think that Jesus in the moment of his crucifixion is speaking a word and the them that he has in mind is the church? The them that Jesus has in mind is not just or maybe at all the Roman centurions who've nailed him to the cross and have punished him and spat on him and have put a crown of thorns on his head. But maybe Jesus' is them is, is the church he gave himself For them, he gave himself for the church. And so maybe Jesus has in contemplation on the cross at the moment the church. Maybe Jesus has in contemplation on the cross at that moment you, me, everyone who through the history of the church will believe in him. Because we don't know that Jesus didn't speak other words on the cross. The scripture at the end of the book of John, John 21, I think it's the last verse, said that if everything Jesus did was written down, the whole world couldn't have enough books to contain it. The end of John 20, I think it says that, but some things, these things are written so that you might believe that having believing in him, that Jesus is the son of God, you might have life. So it seems as if the gospel writers are intent to write down specific things. So believing those things is what gets us to believing that Jesus is the son of God and that believing in him. We have life, and so these things that are written down somehow are are for our salvation. Now, in the book of Romans chapter 6, verse 3 to 10, let's have a look at that for the moment, because there there's some interesting things that are said, because I'm just trying to emphasize the point that Jesus had the church in mind on the cross, that somehow his Father, forgive them, was speaking about everyone who would believe in him, everyone who would believe in him. So that meant that if anyone in front of him believed in him, he meant them. If the guy to his right that says, remember me when you come into paradise, believes in him, as he does in the moment, Jesus says, yes, today you'll be with me in paradise. But let's read this text here in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know? And it's interesting when Paul begins with the phrase, do you not know? He's saying it because he thinks that most of us won't. Or all of us won't. So Paul's saying, don't you know this? Don't you know what's about to be said? So if you've never heard this before, don't worry, because it's here, just in case we don't know. So Paul says, do you not know as many as you as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's been a lot of debate over the years what baptism actually is and whether it's sprinkling or whether you do it at birth or whether you do it as a believer, whether it's full immersion. This is what the word means. It means to be joined with. It means to be joined with. As many as you as were joined Into Christ Jesus were joined into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been, see, the word there is united together in the likeness of his death. So somehow, somehow the Holy Spirit does this amazing work that we are in Christ at the moment that he dies. We are in Christ Jesus at the moment that he dies. You've heard the phrase, in Christ before, haven't you? This is what this is talking about. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, what's our old man? It's all of sin and the flesh and the horribleness of us, was crucified, past tense, with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him, knowing that, another time Paul's saying it, Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more It just shut down. just come back on, it low battery. Brian and I had a conversation to start. I said, is two bars enough? He said it should be. I've never seen two bars go so quickly. (laughs) You'd think that two bars would get you through seven minutes, six minutes, however that's been so far. Um, Anyway, where were we? Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so this is the most significant thing that I want you to grasp this morning is Jesus on the cross has you in mind. Jesus on the cross has me in mind. What Jesus does is not for himself. What he does on the cross is for us. The death that he dies, he dies for my sin, for the horrible things in me, for my failings, for my lies, my cheating, my stealing. Everything wrong about me, Jesus dies for that. And so when he utters those words, Father, forgive them, They don't know what they're doing. He's speaking about who? Us. Let's sink in for a moment. Jesus has us in mind in the midst of that horrible Roman perfected death thing that they've worked out. He somehow manages to utter these words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now in literature, there is a term called an inciting incident. Who's ever heard about an inciting incident? Any of you written screenplays that have won Oscars? All right, our new hands would all go down for that. Uh, but, But an inciting incident is something so significant, an event or something that happens in the life of the protagonist that upsets the forces, the balance of forces in the protagonist's life so much that it throws them all out, and the rest of the story is about them trying to resolve that imbalance and to bring to resolution the thing that was upset. And so whatever happens to them sets them off on a quest. And so story writing always talks about making sure that you've written a good insight in incident somewhere early on in the story, because if you don't, then the hero or heroine can't go on their quest to fix it. Now, how many of you know the story of Victor Hugo's Le Miserable? How many of you have read the book? How many of you have seen the movie? How many of you have watched the musical? How many of you think Russell Crowe can't sing? <laughs> but the story is about a man called Jean Valjean right and Jean Valjean has been in prison for stealing a loaf of bread and when he's released from prison for stealing a loaf of bread he gets his parole papers and his parole papers mean that everyone in the world looks at him as if he's just a criminal and so he doesn't get the wage that anyone else who works a day's work should get instead he gets less than that and as he's walking through the world, he finds a bishop, and he comes upon a bishop who, who it basically extends to him grace. And the bishop tells him to come inside, and the bishop feeds him. But because of his criminal nature, because he's been working as a criminal for so many years, that's just taken over who he is. We don't know that, in fact, the reason he stole bread was just because he was hungry, and in fact, Hugo himself uh, in a book, I think it was called Shaw's View, which means things seen, was inspired to write Les Miserables because he once saw a man being dragged down the street with bloody feet, clutching onto the loaf of bread that he'd been arrested for stealing. That was what incited him, inspired him to write the book. Hugo said that he also was inspired to write the book because he once saw uh, a, a person with the most utmost hatred on their face. And he looked to see the object of their hatred, and it was a woman in a carriage, an opulent carriage who was merely yards away from that person. And he realized that something was wrong there in French society, that not that there were poor people who were angry and upset and lacked, or that there were rich people who didn't have lack, but the woman in the coach didn't notice the other person, who was yards away from them. So he started to write because of those two incidents, and he writes into this an inciting incident in the life of Jean Valjean that sets him on his life story, his life quest. Because after Valjean wakes up in the middle of the night and he sees that there is silver in the bishop's house, and the silver was way more than he could have earned in a day or two or a week, he steals the silver. And having stolen the silver, he runs away, but he's caught and he's brought back, and he has an encounter where him and the bishop and the police are all in the same spot, and the bishop could do many things here. The bishop could say, absolutely, that's my silver, he stole that, send him back to jail and never let him out again. Does the bishop do that? Does the bishop say, I I gave you that. I gave you those things of silver. And does the bishop go one step further? He does. So not only does he let Jean Valjean off a crime that he had certainly committed and says that, yes, I gave him the silver, but in addition to that, he says, and here, Valjean, you forgot these two silver candlesticks. And so on his Sinfulness, he heaps grace. And more grace than the man in the moment deserved, more grace than the man in the moment expected and probably shot the police officers. And so the inciting incident in Valjean's life is one of grace. Grace sets him off on the quest of his life. And you see that the rest of the story of Le Miserable is all about him living because of that one inciting incident. The inciting incident means that when Fantine is accused He stands up for her. When Fontaine dies and her daughter, Cosette, is an orphan, he chooses to go after her and to raise her as his own. When Cosette falls in love with Marius, he loves Marius and wants to give his life for Marius. And you see what happens is Valjean receives grace, and Valjean gives grace. He receives grace. He gives grace to Fontaine. He gives grace to Cosette. He gives grace to Marius. Just as we were singing, as the, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the stars, if the heavens praise you, so will I. If you chose surrender, so will I. If this, that. If you do this, so will I do this. You realize that that's written into the, the code of our universe, even to the extent that scientists recognize that that's one of the laws of physics, action and reaction. And you realize that it's a terrible thing if, if we try and get in the way of action and reaction because we're fighting against the laws written into our universe by God himself. And so in the same way in which Valjean receives grace, if the rest of the story had been Valjean going out and just beating up on everybody that came in his way, and instead of running his factory like a merciful man, he runs his factory like an angry man. And when, when someone's accused, he says, yes, send them to jail. Yes, hold them to account. Yes, do the most w- wicked thing you can do to them. We'd think, what a horrible man that is. What a terrible man that is. Did he not at some point receive grace? So how, having received grace, is he not giving grace? You see, the interesting thing is Jesus tells a story that's a little like that, and it's found in the book of Matthew, chapter 18. And in Matthew, um, chapter 18, Jesus tells a story uh, where he says, um, let me try and find, when Peter, it begins when Peter comes up to him, And says in verse 21, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, do you think Jesus was saying, Peter, do the math? Do the math, and 70 times 7 is, Taylor, thank you, 490. <laughs> the brilliant mathematicians that I missed, I knew they'd have it on the moment. <laughs> but you've got, to have a, you've got to have a list, and you've got to start counting down. And when you get to number 489, you're like, i just got to forgive one more time. And then I've heard it. Do you think Jesus was saying that? Or do you think Jesus was saying, when Peter comes to him and says, how many times should I forgive? Jesus is saying, Peter, stop counting. Peter stopped counting because that's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I'm going to talk about a little bit more later, described it in a sermon called Forgiveness. He believes that Jesus was saying, Peter, just quit counting. How many times do I forgive? Don't count. More times than you would care to. And Jesus then tells Peter a story, which is a little bit like the Le Miserable story, but far worse. And before we get into this story, I want, I want to tell you, I don't know whether in your scripture you have, um, when you read this passage, there are some uh, numbers that someone's added up the math and uh, because we're going to come down to a passage where it speaks about 10,000 talents, and then we're going to come down to a passage where it says 100 denarii. Um, I needed to work that out for myself, um, and so I spent probably more time than I should trying to work out what that should be worth. Um, and, and I found out that the, that 1,000 talents, or, or let me get the number right, uh, that 10,000 talents is a lot. <laughs> um, how much? Apparently, uh, uh, in history, uh, a king of Egypt in about 51 BC gave 6,000 talents to the, to the Romans in order to persuade them to invade, to not invade them. Um, and another king gave 10,000 talents to, to the Romans to persuade them to invade their enemies. So you're getting a sense of the size of the amount. And I'm told that, depending on whether a talent is a talent of silver or a talent of gold, it could be anywhere between $20 million and $200 million and $20 billion, right? Now, you can go read this, and if I'm wrong, and if you can work out that it's more than that or less than that, I'm giving you a range. $200 million to $20 billion, right, when we come to 10,000 talents. And when we come to the Denarii, we're apparently, we're talking about maybe, Five ten thousand dollars, Okay. So bear those two things in mind as we go through this parable. So a king of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants and when he began to settle accounts one was bought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 200 million to 20 billion dollars. But he was not able to pay his master commanded that he sold that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. And you realize that this is the Peter's probably thinking, it's not going to work out. The math's not going to work out. You sell him, you sell his wife, you sell his kids, you sell everything. You're still not going to make that number because I remember in my history books that somebody paid $6,000 and 6,000 talents, and that was a huge amount of money, and it's billions of dollars, and no one's got billions of dollars, so basically this is an impossibility. Therefore, the servant fell down before him because the servant gets this. I think unless we put actual numbers in here, this parable doesn't help me. But when I put an actual number in that says that I owe someone $20 and they, and, and, and they say, sell my family, sell Nathaniel and Catherine and Anna and the dog. Sell the dog first, please. <laughs> um, sorry, Bagel. Um, the, servant, the servant falls down before him and says, Master, and this is what's ridiculous about this, have patience with me and I will pay you all. He can't do that. If he's given all the time in the world, can he pay the debt? He can't. So Jesus, as you realize that Jesus is telling a story about impossibility, he's talking about a debt that's too big to pay, and that the man's response is of a kind that it doesn't even make any sense. Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And the master of the servant was moved with compassion, because he knows what's real, and he says, I release you. Look at that. Somehow bound up in forgiveness is a holding prisoner and a releasing. Because the king could have held him as prisoner and held his family and held all that he had as prisoner for a debt that he could never pay for all time. But instead, it says that he releases him because of compassion and forgives him the debt. But look what that servant does in verse 28. But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. So you've just been forgiven $20 billion. Someone owes you $10,000. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So the fellow servant fell down at his feet, just like he had done before the king, and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went out and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant? Just as I had pity on you, and his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him, so my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. There's some hard words in scripture. Because right at the end of the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, I think it's in in Matthew 6, 14 to 15, because we're taught to pray, God, forgive me my sins, full stop. No, forgiving my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. If you don't believe me, look at Matthew 6, 14 to 15. It says, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you if you don't forgive others. Which is astonishing. And we don't hear this often because it's not very popular, is it? Because we're often asking, God, forgive me, 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 God, forgive me. And how often do we turn and say, because I also forgive others, or as I also forgive? The reason I'm asking you for forgiveness is because I recognize that the grace you've given me is so magnificent, so significant, so immense, God, that I cannot do anything but forgive, because I've got a sense of of the grace that you've given me. Is this, is forgiveness easy? Does it feel impossible Yeah? Anybody here find forgiveness easy? It's tough. And I think the point that when Peter comes to Jesus and says, it's tough, how many times should I forgive? And Jesus doesn't just leave him and say, Peter, you know, it's tough. Work at it, do your best. How many times, Peter says, Jesus, seven? It's like, I think I could manage seven times in my whole life. Jesus stacks it up and says, Peter, don't count. Don't count. And so I want to speak practically for just a moment um, with, with a few things. And the first thing I want to speak practically about is this. Forgiveness is our Christian duty. The Bible's full of a lot of hard sayings, and forgiveness is our Christian duty. It's like Christian job description number one. Right? When you hear Christians saying, I never forgive, I will never forgive, I can never forgive, we should be cautious about that person. Because forgiveness is our Christian duty, let me prove that to you. And I'm not saying it's easy, I'm saying it's impossible, but the scripture says with God, all things are possible, so we should never have a problem when we come to something in scripture that stumps us to the point that we're like, I can't do that. Because it might be in that moment that that's where we find grace. That's where God meets us, and we find ourselves able to do the thing that we said, I will not do, I cannot do, there's no way I can do that. No one could ever expect me to do that. God might meet us in it if we at least acknowledge that it's our job. It's our job description. Jesus tells a parable, and it's in Luke 17, verses 3 to 10. Take heed to yourself. He's speaking about the same thing. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times a day returns to you and says, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostle said to him, Lord, no. That's what increase our faith means. Say, like, no way. We can't do this. We don't in the moment have faith to do the thing that you've just told us that we have to do. He says, increase our faith. So God says, the Lord says, let me tell you a story about faith. If you had faith as a mustard seed, so even whether you got a lot of it, you had any, you could say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, and this is the point about telling us that it's our duty, put yourself in this position. You're the master of the house. Which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he comes in from the field, hey, hope you had a good day working for me. Why don't you sit down and look after yourself first? Feed yourself while I wait. Come and sit down and eat." Will you not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper, put your clothes on, wash you up, serve me till I've eaten and drunk, and afterwards, then you eat and drink. And at the end of the day, does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which are commanded, say, this is what's tough about this. We're unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. This is in the context of forgiveness. Not only is it impossible, not only is it basic Christian job description, but when we do it, we shouldn't boast about it. We just did our job. Every one of us. This is hard. We don't come in and say, Lord, Lord, guess what I did today? I forgave someone. He's like, seriously? God, I did this magnificent thing. There's this person that wronged me in this significant way that was impossible, and I forgave forgave them. (laughs) What you got, Lord? No. Yeah? We should be like the servant that says, I'm just a Christian. It's my job. Hard. Forgiveness is our job description. So the first practical thing that I'm offering you is recognize that it's what we're all called to, and we've got to encourage one another. And the second thing, and I'm going to suggest as a practical thing, is we cultivate forgiving community that is authentic. Let me explain that. I mean, surround yourself with people who forgive. Don't surround yourself with people who are all about vengeance and getting even and an eye for an eye. Watch less of those movies. Because if we watch a lot of those movies, and we hang around with people who says that you really should exact revenge on that person, if we follow the politicians, who stack up the things that people have done against them and never forget, if we follow the media that stack up all the things that have been done and, and, and stack it up against one another and say never let those things go, hold that person to ransom and never forgive them, hold them like a debtor and never release them, if we surround ourselves with people like this, guess what, we're going to find ourselves walking in a similar mindset. But if instead we surround ourselves with people who live, are brothers and sisters, who are forgiving people, who've been through circumstances just like ours who found a way to forgive, I'm not going to tell you what those circumstances are. They're yours. They're personal. If you find other people who've been through the same situation, have found a way, they might have counsel for you to help you find your way to a place of forgiveness. But if you can't find anyone living, find someone who's dead, who still speaks, though they are dead. The Scripture speaks about that we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. That's why we run the life of faith. Through the whole of human history, the whole of Christian history, there have been men and women who, in impossible situations, have forgiven. Why on earth would Nelson Mandela forgive anybody? Why would Martin Luther King Jr. forgive anybody? Yeah, why would Dietrich Bonhoeffer forgive anybody? If you want to begin to soak and surround yourself in some of this community, you can find, just Google Dietrich Bonhoeffer sermon forgiveness, and you can read the sermon that he wrote about Forgiveness. You can read quotes like this from Nelson Mandela. You will achieve more in this world through acts of mercy than you will through acts of retribution. Resentment is like drinking poison then hoping it will kill your enemies. Forgiveness liberates the soul. It removes fear. That is why it is such a terrible weapon. C.S. Lewis, to be Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Maya Angelou, you can't forgive without loving, and I don't mean sentimentality. I don't mean mush. I mean having enough courage to stand up and say, I forgive. I'm finished with it. When I say cultivate Christian forgiving community that is authentic, I mean pay attention to their lives. If out of their mouths come words of forgiveness, but they haven't lived lives that are forgiving, don't pay attention to it. So that's why I go find these people who've lived through the most horrible circumstances imaginable and try and work out how in their lives found forgiveness. Go find your brother and sister who's lived through a circumstance that you think no one could forgive in, and ask them how they found the grace in that moment to forgive. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther king Jr. preached a sermon called Loving Your Enemies. It was a sermon that he preached every year, apparently, from 1957. He preached it in the year, I think it was 1963, that 16th Street Baptist Church was blown up, and four little girls were killed. He preached the sermon there. He preached a sermon about forgiveness even in the aftermath of that. He wasn't preaching retribution. They didn't catch everybody. They caught most of the people that blew that place up. But he still preached a sermon about forgiveness. So I want to take seriously what he said about forgiveness because he was living it. The impossibility of facing people who you know are going to beat you and set dogs on you and aim hoses at you and to kneel in the face of those people the whole essence of the the good part of the civil rights movement, when people were learning to love and learning to walk out love, and they had to sign these pledges. And, and if you ever go type in, a, 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 I think it was a 10-point pledge, you had to be a Christian. You had to say that I love the Lord Jesus. You had to commit to pray every day. You had to commit to basically not respond when someone hit you and beat you. And they would try this out in, in closed rooms. And some people, they'd say, look, you ain't, you ain't good enough to make it to the street. You go do a clerical job. Because when they were screaming at you, and there's this little thing, anyone been to the uh, Civil Rights Museum downtown and you sit on that stool and put on headphones and someone shouts you and your chair shakes a bit? That ain't anything. It's a little bit of a hint of what it might have been like, but they did it for real and they would scream the obscenities in your ear and they would spit on you and all that kind of thing. They did it to the guys before they got on a bus and rode to freedom in 61 and all those other times that they rode buses into the South. Recognizing that their commitment was one to forgive. Because King said a few things, and you could, so I, I was going to read from it, but, but I didn't want to have to cut off the YouTube feed because I was reading too much of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, in a sermon. So Google Loving Your Enemies, Martin Luther King Jr., and you'll find a, think about a 39-minute version, you'll find an 80-minute version. And I think the reason is because, as, as I said, he preached it a lot, at least once a year to his congregation. He said, I'm going to do this once a year, I'm going to preach a sermon on loving your enemies once a year until I'm gone. And don't tell me that you heard it before, (laughs) because you can't hear it enough. And so somewhere in it, he said that loving those considered to be our enemies or opponents begins by recognizing the flaws in us. Because so often we look at other people and we're like, he or she is problematic. He or she has this wrong with them. He or she has this fault. And Jesus said, before you take the speck, the little thing out of your eye, first take the what out of your eye, the plank, which is significantly bigger and actually is made of probably the same wood. So the little thing you see in the other person, get it out of yourself first. So recognize, King would say, that we have flaws. Recognize also that there's goodness in even the worst person. Even the worst person, somehow, the character and image of God is in them, which is hard because King was saying that about the guys that blew up a Baptist Church and killed four little girls, that even in them, somehow the image of God and there then arises this Christian responsibility to to recognize that somehow the power of love the power of forgiveness the power of releasing someone has the ability to transform enemies into friends so imagine if this worked in Congress and every senator and every representative instead of holding up a list of what the other person did to them began to say a oh, hold on a sec they're not evil I'm more evil than they are. And I'm not good. They're more good than I am. That they might begin to see a way to compromise. If in every situation where we find ourselves stacking something up as to why we're right and they're wrong, instead we begin to see the image of God in them and the fault in ourselves. Love isn't vengeful even when it's in a position of power, King would say, or strength. Love doesn't insist on its own ways, not arrogant or boastful. Love looks beyond what is likable, what ought to be hated, it's recognizing that there are things that we should hate, things that we should detest, things that we in our flesh, in our humanity, absolutely should never forgive. But forgive nevertheless. And Love seeks nothing in return for boundless, endless giving. Hatred leads to hatred. An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. A tooth for a tooth. Bunch of mouthless, toothless people in the world. No dentists. Any dentists here? That wouldn't be a bad thing then. But <laughs> well, this is the point. And when Jesus says, when he begins to speak at the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You've heard it said of all this, but I say to you, is a new way. And the new way is a way of love. The new way is a way of forgiveness. The new way is a way of, of not tainting yourself as well as the person that you're hating. Because when you hate, You hate, and it affects the person that you're hating, but also somehow that hate infects you, which is why Mandela says it's like drinking poison and hoping it will kill your enemies. So every time you find yourself in a place where you say, I can't forgive, ask yourself, what does Jesus say? And start with the place where it says it's your Christian duty. And then you might say, God, it's impossible. And he says, I know. I know. Forgive nevertheless. And he might say then, dwell more in the company of people who forgive, less in the company of people who are resentful or or vengeful or full of hatred or full of getting even, and instead hang around people like me, he would say, who understand that forgiveness is possible in the power and in the strength of God. And this is the only way. Love is the only thing, because if you hate and you hate and you hate, and you hate, and you hate, and you hate. At some point, love is the only thing that breaks the cycle. And so the third thing, and the last thing I want to close with is this, is that so firstly, recognize that it's your Christian responsibility, it's your Christian duty. Cultivate Christian community that is authentic. And thirdly, perceive greater grace. You see, the parable that we, we read when Jesus says that there's this man who's forgiven a a huge debt. We don't get how huge that is. We're small minded. You realize that the man that comes out of the king's presence and goes to exact a lot less money from someone else obviously didn't get what had just happened in the room. He was asking for time to pay, and the king, instead of saying, I give you time to pay, says, No, 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 time to pay is not going to do it. I forgive you the whole thing. So he doesn't go out, he, but so the weird thing was because he asked for time to pay, he probably goes out thinking, I've got time to pay. And I think that's what we do as Christians, is we think God's given us time to pay. And you know what that means in Christian, Christianity, it means that we think that we can perfect ourselves. We think that if we walk long enough with the Lord, if we go to enough church services, we sing enough songs, we read enough scripture, that somehow we can be perfect over time. And that the standard to which we fall short of God's high standard isn't that far. And so if we are mean-minded and mean-spirited to one another, and if we are just looking at other people and seeing how terrible they are and not seeing us, then perceiving more grace means get before God and recognize how sinful we are. When Isaiah stands in the presence of God, he says, what's his first words, Isaiah chapter 6? Woe is me. Woe is me. I'm a sinful man. My mouth. I dare not speak. Should take off my shoes like Moses at the bush anytime. This is the whole thing throughout the whole of the revival history. It's not, they used to say it's not how high you jump, it's not whether you run aisles or you have ecstatic experiences or you profess to do this or do that in the name of the Lord. The thing they want to look at is how's your life afterwards? It's how straight you walk, it's not the experience. But the experience of grace with the God himself, who is grace, will transform us, will transform us. Hard words, my brothers, my sisters, for you and for me. this time, I'm not going to hold it back. I don't serve you in any way by telling you that this is less than this, that it's easier than this. Perceive greater grace, pray for grace. Scripture says, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us receive grace by which we may serve him acceptably, for our God is a consuming fire. Acceptably, with reverence and with fear, it means that grace is tangible. Grace is real. God's given, a, given grace to us to meet us in that moment of impossibility, to don't fear the impossible thing. Look for grace in it. And one of the things that the Lord told us to do every time we are together, remember me, remember what I've done. Remember my body broken. Remember my blood shared. Remember that in the midst of that horrific experience of crucifixion that the Romans had perfected, I still had you in mind. I had you in mind. In my agony, I had your sin in mind. I saw you. How is this possible? I don't know. That's what it means to be in Christ. So recognizing the the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of God and the magnitude of what he's given us, that's how we enter into communion together on this day. And so if if you have the cup and the juice before we sing... Just pause a moment. Let me read these words. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remember the amount of grace that I gave. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let's eat and drink together, remembering our Lord the great grace that he's given us until he comes.